Hi, this is Brian Johnson. I'm the publisher of Mass Device, and we're here on Device Talks with Mark Perrin, the CEO of InVivo Therapeutics out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. InVivo is a, a very exciting company um, working in the acute spinal uh, cord injury space. Been around for about 10 years. Um, Mark, a few years ago I was talking to Travis Roy, uh, who's very well known around here as BU hockey player who uh, suffered a traumatic spinal cord injury in his first hockey game as a freshman uh, and uh, has been a quadriplegic since. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking a few years ago, and he said to me in kind of an, a moment of candor, you know, it's been 20 years since this happened. And, you know, I really thought by now something would have been done to, to get me at least sort of out of this chair. And, you know, it, I w- it struck me that, you know, and, and I know you've said this as well, there's, this is a very open space. There's, there's almost nothing you said in terms of the therapeutic treatment for people with acute spinal cord injuries. Right. Tell me about, about this market. Why? Yeah. I think that, um, you know, therein lies exactly one of the reasons why I was so motivated to come to Indivo. And as you mentioned, I've often said that I've worked in many therapeutic areas. I've been in the industry from farm to biotech to specialty farm for 35 years. And this is, although my first uh, uh, stint in the medical device area, I can say that throughout that 35 years, I've never seen a therapeutic space that just simply offers nothing for patients. Um, if you look at the natural, the look at the databases, there is some progression to improvement in very few percentage. Uh, of patients, but most of it is basically stabilize the patient and then rehab to get them used to their daily activities, mm-hmm. their daily life activities. So it was a huge motivator for me to come to a place like Invivo where we could actually change standard of care, in fact, create an entirely different type of standard of care. And that includes not only the implantation of this very exciting device that came out of uh, Dr. Bob Langer's lab but also the surgical procedure associated with spinal cord injury. Up until now, neurosurgeons, when they have a spinal cord injured patients, they do what's called exterior um, decompression. Mm-hmm. It's a laminectomy where they basically remove part of the spine and hoping to relieve pressure from that contusion that's been on this, in, this, in the spinal cord. Right. And then they stabilize it with the rods and bolts, etc. What we're doing, Brian, which is so exciting, is that with our uh, clinical trial, the neurosurgeons are then doing what's called internal decompression. They go one step further, and they begin to open up the actual spinal cord and relieve the pressure that's being built up. Right. It makes all the sense in the world, because if you think, for example, of a traumatic brain injury, if you were to have a severe trauma to your head and swelling began, obviously they'd rush you to the hospital, and they bore a hole in your skull to relieve that pressure. That's the last thing they want. Right. Well, if the spinal cord is an extension of your brain, why haven't we been doing the same thing? So what's been so exciting with our neurosurgeons is the procedure itself, where they can actually see a major decrease in pressure. And what's exciting is that many of them weren't sure that there'd be a cavity of sorts to implant the scaffold. And... Uh, they, when they open up the cord, the necrotic material is, is liquefied. It comes out with a gentle lavage. They were able to insert the scaffold. Mm-hmm. So it's been incredibly exciting. 
Uh, but back to your original point, if indeed we show the success of this, this the, the internal decompression procedure, along with the implantation of the scaffold, which just has to be a one-two type of approach, it will, I hate to use the word revolutionize, but it will certainly re-change re the standard of care. There hasn't been what's called the myelotomy, opening up the spinal cord procedure done. When, when Dr. Nick uh, Theodore did it last October, it was the first myelotomy that's done in this country in over 50 years. Mm. So this is, this is complete change in the standard of care. Wow. So the scaffold itself, let's, let's dig on yeah. that since we just got yeah. there. Um, it's, it goes directly on the spinal cord, is that correct? And it, goes, it bridges the injury? It goes at the epicenter of the cord. So it goes okay. inside the cord. Right. Okay. So um, as the neurosurgeon approaches the cord, he, he cuts into the dura, the pia, and then the cord itself. These, the dura and the pia, the two kind of outer layers that protect the cord. And then slices or does a, 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 a small resection into the cord, mm -hmm. just enough to let all that necrotic material that's swelling up inside the cord to get out, right. and it does come out. Uh, and again, just with a little gentle lavage, uh, he can actually then begin to see right. the cavity. And this was, again, one of the issues that many of the neurosurgeons wondered whether, would there be a, a cavity? Because your cord is, it's like, obviously it's, it's a semi-solid uh, uh, organ, and you know, mm -hmm. just you can't just put a cord in there. Right. But there is, a, there is a cavity that's been created based on the contusion. Mm -hmm. And it just—we've got the patient videos. The first patient surgery—it it basically just slides right into that to that opening. And it's because the spinal cord is protected by the spine, right? So if the spinal cord is has an impact injury, mm -hmm. it swells right against the the vertebrae. Yeah. The well, if you think of uh, the actual injury itself, right. uh, my chief scientist, scientific officer Tom Mulek, I think describes it best. If you put your hand on the table and imagine a hammer coming slamming down on your hand as, as, as hard as possible, that's the kind of impact that your spine sustains in this type of injury. Right. Once the spine is injured, it pushes up against the cord and causes a contusion, uh, and, and therein lies the damage right. to the cord. Uh, so, yes, the spine protects it, and then, as I said, the cord itself is wrapped in enough, several layers. Right. Um, because the spinal cord, I mean, is almost the... the it's the control center of the, your entire body. It is. It, it's part of the brain. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that's what people, um, at least it terrifies me the most about, <laughs> about the spinal cord is, is, my God, this 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 one thing in my body yeah. controls so much. And it's really, you know, I know it's obviously protected pretty well, but it's, I guess... The terrifying thing about acute spinal cord injuries is it can happen to anybody, right? I mean, it can be a freak accident, bicycle, anything. Right. And it changes your life forever. Right. And, and, I, it, and that must be part of what people are really um, is drawn to your story by in right. some respects. Right. right. Yeah, I think that's true. There's, there's such an incredible emotional element to this therapeutic area and the fact that too often, unfortunately, it does impact young people. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the active young people out doing things. Our first patient was uh, on a motocross uh, bike. Our second patient was on a motorcycle. Um, you know, these are active young adults, very athletic, doing things, and they sustain the injury. And it's so tragic. Here they are in their young 20s and just been given a sentence that they'll probably remain in a wheelchair the rest of their lives. Right. It's, to me, it's unfathomable. Mm -hmm. um, unlike other disease areas where, again, just as tragic, 
but I haven't seen a situation where you're basically given a sentence for the rest of your life. You know, you might be talked about, unfortunately, mortality, or you can improve mortality, uh, right. the time for mortality, but this is, this is very emotional. And I would imagine incredibly costly to the system as well, because if someone is young, relatively, mm-hmm. and they're going to need care for the rest of their life, yeah. lives. We've yeah. looked a lot, quite extensively, at some of the healthcare economics. Believe it or not, in the first year alone, it's not unusual to spend, the healthcare system spends over $1 million just mm-hmm. in the first year wow. uh, for a quadriplegic. And those costs are obviously not as high beyond that, but remain quite high throughout. So I think from not only just the huge need from a patient point of view, but even when you start looking from an economic point of view, there's a real need to bring these health care costs down right. uh, and have some of these patients make some improvement so that the cost of care will not be so high. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, <clears throat> going back to why there hasn't been more done, I mean, is it a technology problem or is it a numbers problem, uh, a financial incentive problem? I just think until now there just wasn't any recognition about uh, what could be done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with you know, it's interesting in terms of the procedure. For example, so many of the neurosurgeons would tell us that when they were notified uh, by the hospital that they have a neurosur- that there is a spinal cord injury patient, uh, you know, there's they would just you know when when the OR is available, it's available. There's simply no rush. We'll take care of the patient. And the attitude was. Because there's, there's nothing that can be done to improve the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if we are showing that the sooner you get in the operating room, the sooner one can open up that spinal cord and relieve the pressure and insert the scaffold, and we could talk about why the scaffold is important in the cord after surgery, that that could be the path to improvement. This might not be unlike what's happened in the stroke model, where they demonstrated that the sooner for treatment, the better. The outcome. Right. Um, so you're talking about sort of cascading injuries. That yes, that's the exactly initial right. injury of the spinal cord, uh, or the spine to the spinal cord. Right. The <clears throat> initial impact uh, might not be the, the the only injury that happens. That's there, right. There's, there's other injuries that right. result from right uh, from what though. I mean, yeah. Or, let me let me explain clear? that. So when you look at your spinal cord, there's uh, inside. It's almost like a butterfly shape. That's the internal gray matter. Right. And it's very rich in red blood cells. It's high in vasculature. And then surrounding that is what's called the white matter. And to your point earlier, um, the white matter is basically where it's, it's your superhighways. That's what get, travels up and down to your brain and gives uh, direction to the muscles. Mm-hmm. But upon that massive contusion injury, the first damage is done to the cord that has the highest amount of vasculature, which is the internal gray matter. And that's where all the hemorrhaging begins to take place right away. But if you think of it, if not treated, if, if you don't open up the cord and leave that pressure, over time that, that, that um, swollen gray matter will die and swell and turn into a cyst. Mm. And what then happens is that sw- as, as that cyst enlarges, it pushes pressure up against the white matter. So there's your secondary effect that the highways are being damaged by the swollen internal uh, uh, dead gray matter. So part of your mission literally is to educate surgeons that they need to act quicker. Yes, part of it. Uh, Now, we 
our third patient was treated at 80 hours post-injury, uh, mm-hmm. and he made remarkable recovery. He moved from the, uh, the spinal cord classification of Asia A, which is complete paralysis below the injury, to B. So, and it was a very high injury at T4, fairly high up on the thoracic spine. Right. That was, that was quite remarkable, but he was operated on about 80 hours. And quite frankly, when we heard that, we were concerned that it might be too late, but he mm-hmm. made the recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that you know sooner is better. I think once you get beyond four days, though, um, I, I do think there's, we don't have the data, but the, one, one would think that the uh, prognosis would not be as good as if operated on sooner. So getting back to the scaffold, this is a, this is a bioabsorbable material as well. It, it's sort of right. like, like many of uh, Dr. Langer's technologies, it kind of gets in, releases the drug, and then right. eventually... Well, the scaffold is PLGA, which is basically the same material that's used in bioabsorbable sutures. Mm-hmm. So it's known to be a safe product. <clears throat> also added to it is um, uh, a polylysine, which acts as an adhesive, which is so important. We'll talk about uh, neurons and neural sprouting on the scaffold. So the scaffold is implanted, and within about six weeks, it's completely gone. It's completely absorbed. Mm-hmm. But why, uh, you know, uh, I bet your next question, so I'll ask, many people ask us, well, the surgical procedure sounds great. Why the scaffold? You've already relieved the pressure. Right. Well, the scaffold acts as basically a bandage. Now, if you had a laceration, let's say, on your face, um, you'd go to the emergency room and you'd either have stitches put in or butterfly bandage put in. And the reason's obvious. The healing process is called appositional healing. You want the two tissues or surfaces of tissue to come together. Well, if you have a 3D, basically, um, injury, which is what's happened inside the spinal cord with that cavity, you need a three-dimensional bandage. So the the, the neurospinal scaffold, as that three-dimensional bandage goes in that epicenter Mm -hmm. and serves as a bandage to promote oppositional healing. Without that bandage... You could either get it just you don't have a normal uh, uh, reversion back to the more somewhat normal architecture of the spine. The other thing that's so important about the neurospinal scaffold is it's ninety percent air. It's high porosity, which makes it quite frankly very difficult to manufacture since it's so yeah. fragile. But that porosity is designed so that as um, neural neurons begin to sprout and then uh, turn into axons. So you need, just like a plant needs a trellis to climb up on, the neurons need some substrate to begin forming uh, new axons. Mm-hmm. So it, it serves it for basically two purposes. So it's 90% air. Yeah. Your product yeah. is 90% air. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It must be fun to tell, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, if you go on our website, you'll see the electron microscope of it, and you yeah. can see how... how, how Highly porous it is. Yeah. But again, that's intentional because that's just the kind of environment we believe that the neural stem cells uh, right. love. Mm-hmm. Now, going sort of back to um, the the patient population you're treating, and, and I mean, in vivo, since it's come out, I mean, uh, since it went public years ago, I mean, it's been a hot, a highly discussed stock, uh, much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a ton of press on it all the whole time. I think because of the um, you know the area in which it was serving. But I mean, I wonder if there if there's a a risk to. I mean, obviously, you guys have made some some very interesting strides with your first pilot study, and we'll, we'll mm-hmm. go into that. I, I just wonder in terms of um, balancing the hope 
uh, versus the reality. Because, I mean, we all, you know, no one wants to give false hope to people that are, that need, you know, this treatment badly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you obviously want to keep the, the momentum going, keep the story rolling, talk about the great strides you're making. Uh, How do you balance that? How do you balance the, 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 from going overboard and saying, oh, we can cure paralysis someday? Oh, yeah, no, no. Well, I think that, you know, as we've seen patients present and provide informed consent, I think the physicians obviously do a wonderful job explaining that up until now there really has been nothing I can do for you. Uh, there's a very remote chance you could have some improvement, and we now have this new novel device. Uh, it's animal studies and now it's been man has shown to be um, could be quite effective and uh, it can focus in and we, we talk about the three areas in which it might show improvement obviously motor recovery uh, sensor recovery which is very important um, gaining the sense of touch down the dermatomes right. and then the autonomic recovery <coughs> which is uh, <coughs> excuse me bowel bladder and sexual function which, as we've talked to patients, and now we're talking, well, I switch over to the chronic spinal cord injury patient, they say that it's the autonomic functions, the uh, bladder and bowel control and sexual function. These are, these are quality of life. These are, this is an issue of dignity. If they could regain that, that would, that would add so much to their life. Right. So we don't say, no, you're going to get up and walk. We say these are the areas we're going to look at, and we hope to have improvement in, throughout these three areas. Of, of potential improvement. Right. So there's sort of the three pillars there. That, right. And so it's almost like the hierarchy of needs, right? The, right. the baseline is the... Well, there's motor, the, again, the sensory, right. then the autonomic. And right. As, again, each patient will tell you what's is most valuable. Hopefully, our product will have improvement in all three measures. Right. Let's go into the pilot study. I mean, yeah. so you've had two patients undergo the procedure. In that, three. Three patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've shown some significant uh, improvement. Tell me a little bit about you know who they were, what and what sort of mm-hmm. um, improvements they saw post uh, procedure. Right. right. <clears throat> yeah, we can talk about that and then talk about the regulatory path. So the first patient, a motocross accident in uh, Arizona, uh, it was operated on by Nick, Dr. Nicholas Theodore at the Barrow Institute in Phoenix, which. I didn't realize, and, and perhaps many of your listeners don't, that the Barrow is the largest neurosurgical center in the United States, mm-hmm. and Dr. Nick Theodore is one of the most well-known neurosurgeons in the country. So it was certainly um, uh, very, very opportun- uh, very good fortune for us to have Nick do the first surgery. So the patient had a T11, T12, complete paralysis. So T11, T12 on the thoracic spine is going to be further down um, in the back. And again, complete paralysis. When we say Asia A, A means complete with no, no feeling whatsoever or no function below the site of injury. Uh, the surgical procedure went extremely well. We did a one-month checkup on him, and his score on this Asia classification went from A to C. Mm-hmm. Went right through B. It was Asia C. Uh, and we can go into the details what Asia C means, but it meant... Uh, Primarily, a lot of recovery down into the to the uh, to the base of the spine, and and a return of sexual a return of uh, bowel bladder function, and that was a real uh, real important milestone for a patient of this nature. 
when we look at the databases, and again, they're fairly rich, there's the European database and the U.S. database of spinal cord injury, less than 5% of patients who have an injury at the T11, T12 uh, point of the thoracic spine have an Asia A to an Asia C improvement at 30 days. Mm -hmm. So we were quite taken aback and thrilled, obviously. Could it be lucky or could our scaffold be working? N equals one, it would be hard to tell. Right. But um, the gentleman's made just terrific recovery and continues to, to show improvement. He's now got movement down to his knees. And it's, he's he's just a he's he's wonderful. His, his attitude he's, you'll see him a lot on social media. Uh, he's just remarkable recovery. We're, we're just so thrilled for his for his improvement. Right. And then the second patient as well was <clears throat> so the second patient was a young woman. Uh, this surgery was done in Charlotte, North Carolina, the Carolina Medical Center. Uh, now she uh, her injury was a little higher. But the biggest challenge, I think, according to our, our principal investigator, was it was polytrauma. She had injuries, um, she had a collapsed lung, uh, just to name one of the, the most significant ones. It required quite a bit of, she needed to be stabilized before she could even go to surgery. Um, now, in her case, she has not yet made a movement out of that Asia A classification, but she is making improvement on some other measures. When we, for example, when at her six-month assessment, she made a jump of five Level, levels of dermatome on the one side. Uh, this is very important. For example, many of these patients, when they have no sensory function, or sens um, they develop horrible bed sores and other things, and that's not only horrible for the patient, but costly to keep hospitalizing these patients. So even though she hasn't made that kind of recovery, um, the, the sensory recovery looks very encouraging. Right. Now, the third patient, also done in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, this gentleman had a T4, much higher up on the thoracic spine, and at 30 days, he went from the Asia A, complete paralysis classification, to Asia B. Mm -hmm. So again, we go to the databases and we look at what percent of patients just without any help can get that. It's about 4%. So now things start looking very interesting for in vivo. We right. have a patient, less than 5% would happen. We have another patient, less than 4% that would happen, and the second patient, didn't make some improvement or no change, but no change in the Asia classification. So, you know, it'd be nice to think that we're no longer just lucky. It looks like we might have a trend starting here in terms right. of improvement. So, in terms of your pilot study, the FDA, you have approval for five right. patients. Um, what's the criteria to move on then to right. um, the yeah. next phase? Great question. And, and, and I'm just going to just back up just a moment on that. Sure. When I first joined, what the FDA required of the company in the five-patient pilot study was to do the first patient for 90 days, then we'd wait and submit the data to the FDA and then say go, and then we'd do the second patient, wait for 90 days, and so on and so on. And so it was completely sequential. Yeah. Uh, and I looked at that trial design and I thought, oh, oh my. Uh, with really, you know, and I think this is it says a lot as far as what is that done. ninety FDA days or is that ninety <laughs> <laughs> normal days, right? Uh, I'm using calendar days okay. on that. I'll let the <laughs> listeners decide their own interpretation of that okay. definition. Um, but you know, I think we work very hard on building relationships throughout all our constituencies, and one of them, of course, is being the agency. So we did approach them and ask if there's any way we can condense this, and in fact, they said yes. So after the second patient. They said we could open up enrollment to patients three, four, and five concurrently. 
Mm-hmm. So we open it up. Um, we're open for the trial right now. Four and five can be enrolled any day. And um, so, but, but, but once we enroll the five, in fact, we're going to meet with the FDA here within the third quarter and talk to them, okay, how do we then roll over, transition, or segue, whatever, you know, the, the case may be, into our probable benefit study. Right. So let me take a moment to talk about probable benefit because this is very unique. As I said, my 30-plus years were on the drug side. So over here on the device side, there's a very unique thing that's not on the drug side called um, HDE, Humanitarian Device Exemption, and, to, and how to get approved under that pathway. Unlike anything in the drug side, you can do a trial and do not have to show statistical significance. All you need to do is show, quote, probable benefit. Mm. So then you ask, well, what does that mean? And it boils down to basically a risk-benefit, you know, is the benefit such that it outweighs the risk, even though you haven't demonstrated that in a placebo-controlled, statistically significant, statistically driven trial? It's a matter of that when we meet with the agency this quarter, we'll talk about, you know, what is the sample size? It looks like after three patients, we're already starting to see a trend of effectiveness. Uh, obviously, this FDA is going to be very concerned about the safety. Uh, we've seen no adverse events associated with the scaffold so far with the three patients. But obviously the larger the database for safety is important to the agency. So we'll go meet with them and determine what this so-called probable benefit study will look like. But I'm thrilled that we can get this product to market in a much faster regulatory pathway than I've ever seen on the drug, on the, on the drug side of right. the agency. So Aviva's been a public company for a few years. I mean, it went public through a reverse merger uh, I can't even remember, four or five years, five years ago. So, I mean, in terms of, and now you're listed on the NASDAQ and seemingly doing very well, um, how is your funding pathway to, I mean, this is still, still seems like a pretty long road right. here. I mean, are right. you guys, um, are you constantly out still sort of <laughs> ringing the dinner bell here? Well, well let, let me, that's another great question. Let me explain a little bit about the financings we've done. So, uh, since I joined the company, we've done two financings, mm-hmm. uh, both prior to the NASDAQ uplist. And then we did the NASDAQ uplisting in April and built a considerable market cap you know, since that time. Just recently, we also announced that we put in place a at-the-market, an ATM financing vehicle with Cowan. Uh, Cowan, a very well-respected, uh, established bank, especially in the you know, pharma and device world. And we're delighted to work with a bank like Cowan. That 50 million ATM is in place to collect demand on a kind of an ongoing basis, generally very non-dilutive, that the company can issue shares uh, at a small amount, but it will depend upon the demand coming in. So we now, you know, ATMs are something that many people were very uh, strongly either supportive or are against. But I think my view of ATMs, as many people are now saying, is just another tool in the toolbox. Right. Where probably at some point in time virtually all companies will have an ATM in place. It's just, again, it's a tool in the toolbox. Why not put as many tools in there as possible? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we aren't going to go out and do other finances, etc. But it does mean that when I go out and do a non-deal road show and I've got interest from a healthcare institutional buyer, they can act, the ATM can serve as a way in which for them to purchase uh, purchase equity. And you came to the company in 14, is that right? Or uh, January 2015. Okay, January 2015. 
What's the onboarding process been like for you? <laughs> well, I think it was clearly a time of major transition for the company. Right. And so I had kind of my rule book about what, what do I accomplish in the first six to 12 months. One of the things that <clears throat> I've learned in, in my career is that get your leadership team in place. Mm -hmm. if, if there are problems with existing people, address it. If there are holes or gaps in major functional areas, address it. Unless you have the right team in place, you're never going to get the right corrections done to the company or the right path forward. So I focused a lot on that initially. Uh, the company was dealing with an interim chief financial officer, an interim chief medical officer. It had no scientific officer. It had no uh, general counsel. There were a number of gaps. So I filled all those four positions uh, as well as a number of others. And I think I put together um, just a fantastic team in terms of their depth and breadth. These are people who have significant amount of experience that have had jobs, frankly, well beyond what they're being asked to do now. And that was another lesson I learned a number of years ago. A former CEO of mine said, over hire, over hire, over hire. You have to hire people who have done well more than what you're asking them to do now because if you're going to grow the company, you don't want them to ever even blink as far as their growth is concerned. Right. So the first step was uh, putting leadership team in place. The second one was get some money, uh, which is really tough. You know, you're, you're, you're brand new and you've got a short runway of cash. You're not in a position of strength. So we went out and did a financing. It wasn't one of my favorites, I, I must admit. But you have to have cash to run the company. The third thing was to get the product in the clinic. We were running into some, a number of manufacturing problems. I talked earlier about that porosity. That was a real challenge for us in the manufacturing. But we finally got the manufacturing down and were able to get the trial started last May. So um, those were probably the three key things. The fourth key thing, which was a tough one, the company had a second technology platform, again, coming from Bob Langer's lab, the hydrogel program. Right. And, you know, my chief scientific officer, who had a lot of, did, did all his preclinical, uh, ran all preclinical at Amgen, had spent a lot of time, he knew all the sustained release drug uh, delivery systems, including hydrogel, and came to the conclusion that as a 20-plus-year-old technology, it just wasn't a major value driver. There are many sustained release technologies that have come out subsequent to hydrogels that have proven to be less costly um, and less issues with the CMC in general. So we, we decided to stop all activity on that, but retained it for potential cell delivery for our neurostem cells. And with that, uh, we had a reduction in force of about one-third of the company. Mm -hmm. So in addition to bringing on key leadership at the top, I think we right-sized the company as well which I think is something that has to be done early on and, and, and give clear direction both internally and externally. We are a company focused on spinal cord injury, and this is where we're going to put all our energies. And, and, and after the reduction in force, I think the company, the small team I have now, has really coalesced, is, which is incredibly full of energy now mm -hmm. that they know exactly what the specific mission is. And how big is the, is the company now? 30, 31 people. 31 people. So was it almost about 50 people at one point? Uh, yeah, we, uh, we were up 45 to 50 people about one okay. point, yeah. Wow. And, uh, you know, after all the, if everything bears out, then obviously there's the commercialization Correct. stage. Um, tell me, um, when you're talking to investors, what do you, yeah. what do you, what picture of a future in vivo therapeutics right. do you paint them? Right. Well, now uh, now you've hit on my sweet spot that I love talking about. Uh, my 
background is all sales and marketing, basically, mm-hmm. before I moved up to the leadership positions. So uh, at the two pharmaceutical companies I worked at, I ran all the sales and marketing for the U.S. operations. And then two of the companies I worked subsequent to that, I was asked to come in and actually build from scratch a complete sales and marketing organization, in one case a fairly large one, as well as manufacturing and business development. So when I look at this, nothing would give me greater delight than to build my own sales and marketing team, and I think it's entirely possible to do so. We're looking at 200 trauma centers in the United States. Mm -hmm. That can be covered by a very small direct sales force. I think the one thing that we're starting to look at is what role the rehab centers are going to play and how much calls coverage is required in that target audience, and also with the healthcare payers, how much involvement with our Salesforce can be involved with uh, payers. But even adding those two additional elements to your neurosurgical target audience, one can put together a fairly small, I think, commercial organization. We can commercialize this ourselves. And that's not to say I wouldn't be open to working with a partner on this, but it's nice to have the option. Mm-hmm. So, is, I mean, I, I, it's sort of a trick question because every every good CEO yeah. says, well, we want to build a billion-dollar company. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. is that is that is that your goal to build a billion dollar company or is it to uh you know what when I, when someone said to me you know I, I, and i feel this is probably the best thing there's two things that i've learned in my career to focus on mm-hmm. you better first focus on the patients yeah if you're not patient focused your organization will fail mm-hmm. so i think you know kind of like people always say you know what gets you up in the morning and go to work number one is the patients if we help them that's what it's all about. The second thing to pay attention to are the shareholders. Right. Um, I, 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 you know, some people, even internal employees, will say, "Well, the, the shareholders." And I remind everyone: the shareholders are the owners of this company. They own us. Right. Okay, and that's my other obligation. I mean, they're the owners of the, my company. So, but I feel that if I take care of the patients, what generally happens is I take care of the shareholders. They're very happy because we're successful on one, brings success to the second. Mm-hmm. Now, valuation-wise, does that drive a billion-dollar company? I, 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 that the number is not which is important to me. I, bigger is obviously better, but if you take care of one and two, what you're asking about as far as valuation often comes comes mm-hmm. next. Do you think the market is there to have this become, you know, like a? Big ortho company in that respect, sir. Well, not not necessarily an ortho company uh, because we're focused just on spinal cord injury. Right. Uh, does this have the opportunity to be, you know, a billion dollar revenue company? I would think so. Uh, when you look at the acute market, but especially when you look at the uh, chronic market, then you're probably talking about a multi billion dollar opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two hundred and seventy three thousand people in the United States living with spinal cord injury. If we can, and that's our second generation program, which is a scaffold or at least some some biomaterial with neural stem cells and to serve that chronic market. And now I'm just talking about the United States. And then you talk about the rest of the world, the numbers obviously keep going up and up and up. So a multi-billion dollar revenue opportunity, absolutely. So, I mean, you're, and the, 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 the <clears throat> distinction here is a chronic would be a previous injury? Yes, that's okay. correct. Because currently, right now, you're on drilled acute. in on immediately after the right. injury happens. Right. And, there, and there's 12,000 of those each year. Right. And when I say 12,000, I'm talking about thoracic and mm-hmm. cervical spine. 
And I would imagine that your patient community is a highly engaged, highly vocal community. Is that probably... Yeah, post-injury, obviously. Yeah. You know, um, and... A lot of people looking at this. Right, but, you know, it's, 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 it, until you have the injury, you know, you, you become obviously incredibly immersed in that, in that patient right. advocacy group. But it's a little unique. It's all post, not pre, yeah. you know. Um, and until we have a product to address the chronic market, unfortunately, we can't do anything for those patients mm-hmm. right now. I mean, but hopefully we can help the patients that are being injured every, every and the, and, uh, right now, possibly. Yeah. You know? I mean, I guess sort of the final question here would be, I mean, what, if, what, did you, what have you learned in talking to these patients that you didn't know coming in that maybe would surprise people or, or um, just in terms of what, what what these people live with or what what they tell you about yeah. what it's like. Yeah. I think without, I mean, for the person, just think about a person paralyzed. Mm-hmm. I think they just look at, well, they can't walk, they're in a wheelchair. And I think they, they you know, because that's what they see. You right. know, you, you think what you see. You see a patient, you know, maneuvering around the world in a wheelchair. I think the striking element which I referred to earlier on, are all the things that are associated with that that bring such unfortunate um, poor quality of life. I mentioned, you know, not having bowel and bladder control. I mean, that is just so difficult for them to deal with. Not having sexual function, you know, um, that to, to not have that type of intimacy available. I mean, they're just, it's tragic. And there's one other thing I did not mention earlier how much pain they're in. These patients are have a lot of pain. It's not unusual. They'll be on some form of narcotic analgesics for the rest of their life on and off. So it's just a bad quality of life. And I think that's what I've learned so far with working with heroes, which, which to me makes this whole motivation, what can we do to these patients even stronger? And again, they have nothing. Right. If we could give them something. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Sure would. Well, thank you so much, Mark. This has been terrific, and uh, Brian, best thank of luck. you. Very good. Thanks for your interest. Great story. All right. Mm-hmm.